0: This is The Film File. Yes, it's the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Roll projector. Oh, they don't exist anymore. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm still Andy Beacon. And this week the show is sponsored by... Good friend and listener to the
1: show, Harvey Morton who has a book coming out in December that we have a special exclusive offer just for you lovely people out there.
0: As you know, Harvey was a guest on the show. He's a a young entrepreneur and Harvey's story is inspirational. A journey from being bullied at school, told by the teachers he would never succeed to winning his first business award when he was 14 years old. If you want to know more about Harvey's story, you've got to simply do this.
1: Uh, His book will be coming out on the 19th of December. Uh, it's called Succeeding as a Young Entrepreneur, and it covers things like the importance of being passionate about the career that you choose. I mean, that's something close to my heart. I mean, I've chosen a yeah. career that well, I'm passionate for all of us, about. Really. Giving back when you can to make a difference to other people's lives. Harvey is an inspiration to us all because he's worked hard to achieve his own goals, irrespective of all the failures that he encountered. A failure is just an excuse to do better next time and to pick up and move on. So, we've got a special offer for all you guys out there for when the book comes out that. We've got a discount code, which is FilmFile25, and that gives you 25% off the purchase of the book through the pre-orders at Eurospan Bookstore. I'll put the link in the description of the show below, so feel free to click through and pre-order your copy of the book. We'll be talking more about Harvey's book as it gets closer to the date, because we're looking forward to reading it ourselves. And like we say, Harvey's journey is one that is an inspiration for us all.
0: So if you're looking for that perfect Christmas gift for that person who's maybe got it all, but hasn't got the career that they want, check out Harvey's book. And now, the show. Andy, how are you? You, You're copying and spluttering. (laughs) You're replaying me from a couple of weeks ago. It does seem a case that there's something nasty going around. Something wicked yeah. this way comes, one might say.
1: And there's something nasty going around. It isn't me this time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not well. Last week at work, there was a few people who were struggling to get through the weekend, but because we were in a busy weekend with Taylor Swift, no one wanted to take the time off sick. And the result is that a week later, there's a few others of us who are now starting to feel the ill effects, and I'm struggling. I think I'm just over the peak of the worst of it, but I'm on that annoying, uh, annoying phase when... The inside of your nose is itching, but you can't sneeze. And you're sweating profusely, even though you're dehydrated. It's a weird sensation. I feel dehydrated, yet really sluggish and muggy. Ooh.
0: Uh, You know, I mean, it might be worth checking out. Uh, I know you've not had COVID, but also it might be worth checking out, calling in an exorcist, just in case.
1: Well, you know, I think I need one to get the memory of the more recent exorcism (laughs) film out of my mind. But, you know, even though I've been feeling ill, I have been quite quite productive i mean those of you who still what look over on my youtube channel which has been vacant for many many <laughs> months I did will have noticed our, our
0: youtube channel recently uh, yeah you know they say that the best way to be successful on youtube is to be posting something every day
1: i post something every six months uh, well <laughs> i posted a new video this week which was a compilation of the last three deep dives and it was so easy to do because it literally took me five minutes to take the chunks that we've got here Drop them into my video editing suite and then let it process. So um, it's going to be something that every few weeks I'm going to drop in the deep dives as like a li- nice little lecture. Which even though you've listened to the deep dives, go- guys and girls, feel free to check over on the YouTube channel because it's mostly unedited and there's some flubs <laughs> oh, that dear. take place. Oh quite new. dear, it's a nice little additional thing to start doing it. And be- little little inside secret, guys, is that Lee doesn't always listen to my reviews because. I I tend to if he's not seen a film so that I don't risk spoiling things for him I record my review off air. I record it separately. Well, I've been recording them with the video as well, so I could start dropping them out as just reviews of films That's on a weekly a great basis. Idea.
0: I, I do listen to the show. Just, I I complimented you how good yeah, it, it sounded last week.
1: He listens afterwards. It's just that when it comes to recording live, if, if I've seen some like four or five films that he hasn't, it just seems pointless for him to sit there just nodding his head at me for like <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> Making
0: witless comments. Oh, what I do every week.
1: And I've also made my own
0: DCP. I, I, I don't know what that one of those are.
1: DCP is the file format for movies on the big screen in the digital cinemas. It's digital cinema package and it's taking a video format and converting it into the format for there so i i've got the dcp editing software and i've been testing that out and I've, i did it for a trailer for something that we needed and um, we needed to get it onto the projectors as we test one and it worked a treat so now i'm starting to come up with ideas of what we can do to you know have our theme tune playing in the background of like a little plug sting to drop into um occasional Ooh, shows i like because... that
0: i like that
1: <laughs> well I'm going I want to use it for um advertising the quiz that we do at the cinema each month, which we use the same logo that we have for this this podcast sneakily and and I can include a little link to uh, the podcast socials on the bottom corner of it so we can start working to like you know manipulate the audience at the cinema.
0: You <laughs> <laughs> will listen to this podcast. you will.
1: But aside from that and not feeling well. I've not really done a lot except for just lay back and watch. I've watched a lot of TV. There's a lot of TV at the moment. Far too much.
0: There is. um, And I'm breaking down that list. You know, the other week we said uh, I allow myself a certain amount of shows to watch. Just ticking them off before I can start something new. And I ticked another one off. Uh, Watched the last episode of season three of Only Murders. I wasn't keen when it first started this particular season. Uh, As it went on, it became much more enjoyable and and loved it. What a great show. What a charming show. It's basically Last of the Summer Wine with Murders, (laughs) which would have always been a better show for me than Last of the Summer Wine was. (laughs) I'd, I'd, I'd buy that.
1: Yesterday, I watched um, something which proved us kind of right on a previous question of the week. You remember last week it was where we did the black and white things in black and white that deserve to be in black and white and colour would somehow diminish them. So I watched Werewolf by Night in colour. So thank you, Disney Plus. You've given me something as a complete evidence that something belong in black and white because it went from being four and a half stars went like for the black and white version that I absolutely loved to three and a half at best. Because oh, right. it really diminishes it. I mean, it it, it gives it like a seventies kind of like colour grading effect, which I kind of like appreciate what they were trying to do. But it really does lessen the impact of it. The whole thing about Werewolf by Night was that whole play on those classic black and white horror movies and you yes. know all the dark yeah, that shadows, etc. It it really it didn't work. It was terrible.
0: I remember hearing an interview with uh Salon Parker. Talking about his, his early days in commercials, and they were shooting a, I think it was for a beer, a beer commercial, and they brought in this old-time uh, DOP, because the idea was to shoot it in black and white, and they, they saw him work, and they, he, he was lighting this set, and he as a director, Alan Parker, was looking over to uh, the rest of his crew, and, this, and there's shadows all over the place, it looks shocking um okay we'll we'll go with it and they they rolled camera look back at the dailies later and it looked beautiful mm. so because... yeah there's there's a style to shoot in black and white it's not just hey drop it into uh monochrome it's the way that yeah. the shadows are, are built texture is built and uh, that's why i don't want to watch werewolf by night in color i probably will but i it's not higher on my list it diminished it immensely
1: and i don't recommend people check it out even out of curiosity because i did that and look at me now i've got i'm not i'm now not feeling well that's what it did to me
0: (laughs) (laughs) hey i know what'll make you feel happier our social challenge we set a social challenge last week as we always do we did a thing and uh did we get many in the way of responses over last week's question
1: well, last week's question was uh, to think back to when you were young. Was What films were that that you sneakily watched at far too young an age that made an impression that you think that maybe you were just that little bit too young to see? And we didn't get a huge response on this. Oh,
0: how disappointing, because we got a great one to the black and white question. Mm.
1: I can kind of understand why, though, because I've really struggled with this one, okay. simply because I'm passionate about films. I don't know whether they knew about that. Um, and i have been since since a very early age and i've always considered myself to be quite advanced with my film watching so i was watching things from an early age that most people would watch later on i mean i've already said multiple times that i was watching horror films by the time i was 10 yeah you know, i was reading stephen king from the from like age 8 onwards you know so i was i was kind of advanced in what i encountered anyway so not a lot of things for me felt like i shouldn't be watching them because they didn't they didn't really impact me or scare me or frighten me or send me running to the hills. It was like, They just thrilled me in the way that they're supposed to. And I think a lot of the film community out there who engage with us are probably of the same kind of similar mindset because they, like us, watch so many films and they watch so many films because they grew up watching a wide array of films. So I think that's why we've not got a huge amount of responses. But of the responses that we got, we did get some, uh, we did get some good good ones. OK, okay. start okay. over on Mastodon, where we had one response from Fulton Bolg, who said the day after.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: My parents were right. It was quite terrifying and disturbing. And the, I've never seen the day after. Uh, but I imagine that it's got a very similar effect to what Threads had on us yes. at an early age. And, um, you know, during that era of Cold War threat of nuclear attack, it was hard not to get chilled and disturbed by something that looked like this could happen. Fulton says that Threads is far worse. He's watched that as an yes, adult maybe 20 years ago and still remembers that vividly. Whereas The Day After was a nice TV movie, but it was still enough to shock at a young age.
0: I can say categorically that Threads frightened me. Our school was involved uh, as, as the extras in it. And uh, I shouldn't have watched it. My my mum didn't want me to watch it. And uh, I did because, you know, teenager. <laughs> and yeah, that, that, that frightened me.
1: I mean, we've, we've said in the past that with regards threads, you you know, it's set in Sheffield. So if you if you live in Sheffield, it, it kind of hits a bit closer to home. Over on Blue Sky, Apple Park Films said it wasn't sneaky, but my parents showed me RoboCop when I was two. Two, <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> so that's um, Apple Park Films. Good old Adam Nelson, who we had on the show. Uh, but RoboCop at two. That's that's crazy thinking, man. Yeah, the fact that you
0: remember it as well—I
1: mean, I think that would stick in your head regardless. Yeah, yeah. Over on X Twitter, Imran said Salem's Lot in middle school. Now we've spoken about Salem's yeah, Lot before yeah. and how chilling that is, even as an adult, and watching that at a young age. Yet yeah, I can see that kind of being a popular choice for most people. That it—it's it, a film that still chills us now, and I think we everyone all- has had an experience
0: with that. <laughs> we all talked about it the next day at school. It was one of those. Up today.
1: over on facebook we got the most responses lindsay story who remembers her mum forbidding her to watch basic instinct <laughs> i can see why uh but she went and watched it anyway when she found out she got the whole i'm so disappointed in you speech
0: <laughs> it, it's it's funny it's it's that thing that that reoccurring thing is you weren't allowed to watch it but hey you went and watched it anyway that That's the point of this discussion.
1: This is why I've never forbidden my children to watch anything, because I know as soon as I say, I don't want you watching that, you're yeah. going to watch it, because that's what I used to do. Of course, you'd go and look out for things that you've been told not to watch it, because you need to know why you're not allowed to watch it. She also remembers staying up early hours on Thursdays to watch Amicus films when she was in her early teens. Loved them, but think if I watched them as an adult, I would have thought they were corny. It's the nostalgia of watching them when you're yeah. young but was definitely too young when she first watched The Exorcist. Regan terrifies her, and she couldn't watch it for years.
0: I get it. Totally get it. Uh, they left. A, it did a number on me seeing that for the first time. Again, watched it when I was far too young.
1: Lee Leary gave us uh, Salem's Lot, so another one from Salem's Lot there. Genuinely chilling. Genuinely yeah. chilling. Um, he remembers his mum threatening him to go to sleep with the Glickies and
0: then scratching on the window, <laughs> scarred <laughs> for life. That's <laughs> what parenting's all about, I've discovered. It's those little moments of, of, of putting a child into catatonic fear.
1: I, I I replied to that just simply saying parents can be dicks at times. I know because I've done similar things. <laughs> <laughs> um, Adnan Mustafa, Nightmare on Elm Street, reckons he watched that at too early an age. And this is where me 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 and Adas uh, he's one year older than me. We went to university together. You know that's how we like grew as friends. And so we would have both appreci- ap- approached this film around the same era when it first dropped on vhs in the uk now for me that's not something that had an impact on me because like i said i was watching horrors from far earlier in age he wasn't so this impacted on him when it when it finally came out carl leduc heavy metal had no idea what was happening but the music and animation was epic at the time and it was the first time he caught actors that he liked doing voiceover work yeah heavy heavy metal i'd say yeah that's something that you feel
0: Add that to our list
1: you feel kind of sordid watching at a young age you feel that you shouldn't be watching it because even the even the heavy metal comics it's one of them that you kind of casually pick off the, off the shelf when you're like 13 years old and browse through and go Ooh, i'm not sure Ooh, if i'm allowed yeah. to buy this i end up buying playboy instead <laughs>
0: <laughs> safer
1: much safer Stephen young it was independence day and the operation scene with the alien on the medical table remembers being suddenly very interested in his popcorn and avoiding the screen <laughs> might, have, might have had something to do with his dad Was had snuck him into the screen. Yeah, I mean, for something which is like a sci-fi action festival film, and generally thought of for that. That scene is truly terrifying. That scene is like pure horror. And it, it sits in amongst all this wisecracking Will Smith elements to suddenly go very, very dark. So yeah, I can, I can understand that. Uh, Tony Enshaw. We love Tony Enshaw. Dr. Fibes.
0: Good choice, Tony. Good choice. Yeah, we ought to have I Tony
1: on as a that. guest. It would be great to have Tony on. We love Tony. For those who don't know who Tony is, he's a very well-respected journalist who's worked for many publications and has also written heavily about the horror industry and is always doing Q&As with directors, stars, producers. Um, he's, he's had a few books out of compilations of his talks. I've got one of his, fantastic, which some of the people who he's spoken to over the years makes me jealous, immensely jealous.
0: Tony and I share a, a deep love for Danger Diabolique. So oh. if that's not a good enough reason to get uh, Tony on the show, I don't know what is. Um, I, I said a thing. I mentioned that I sat with my dad watching The Wicker Man, and it got to the stage where there's the um, there's the dance <laughs> sequence, which uh, wasn't Britt Eklund, uh, but it was a body double, and my dad sort of looked at me Uh, And I kind of met his gaze for a moment, very embarrassed. And and there was that almost telepathic message going, I don't think you should be watching this. But (laughs) nothing was said. And we both went back to the screen. um, And and a moment passed between us. I'll never... Ever forget that?
1: I've been in encounters like that. Sat watching something with my kids when something's popped up that is like, "Oh, I'm not sure that you should be watching this." But you're you're too far down that rabbit hole that you don't yeah. want to broach the subject. <laughs> so you just hope you just sit there hoping that it'll just shrug off and like move on quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Patricia Meakin, my good old bumsy, uh, the innocence. She was 14 in 1961. She remembers walking into the cinema, head down, terrified that she'd be caught. Never forgotten that day or that film. As a result, it was the equivalent of a fifteen back then. Uh, whatever yeah. the rating systems were at that point in time, U, X, A, B—I don't know. They've changed the rating system so much. Yeah, it was, it was the equivalent it was double of double like, X? Was so something terrible.
0: that you really couldn't see. X was over eighteen. <laughs> and That reminds me of actually going in to see my first X movie, and I was being—I was far too young. I know. I remember it was Enter the Dragon.
1: Yeah, they, they slapped an X on pretty much everything i mean x now is generally considered to be oh that's pornographic but x was not just pornographic yeah. um x just basically the equivalent of the 18 rating now there's loads of x-rated films from the 70s that you would think really that's x-rated i mean yeah, the, first, the first x-rated film wasn't was it midnight cowboy was the first x-rated i think so the i UK. think i think you're right there a great film we should deep dive that at some point yeah james brian the thing watched it I watched it on his first TV, a black and white Ferguson. <laughs> we only spoke last week about me having a black and white portable TV. It's great to know that other people share that memory. <laughs> um, it was on the BBC in the mid 80s. It was the first film to give him nightmares. Still class it as my favourite John Carpenter film, uh, alongside Big Trouble in Little China. It's all in the reflexes. And the thing's a great choice. But again, I mean, James is round about the same age as me. He'll seen it round about the same time as me. I thrilled at the thing for the use of special effects. I wasn't shocked or horrified or felt that uh, I was scared by it. And I just think that I just think that maybe I'm twisted inside. (laughs) I just just think my upbringing was too horror focused that I'm not disturbed by things. So for me, I mean, it was tricky to think of something that I felt that I shouldn't be watching. And the best I could come up with was on TV and the Hammer House of Horror series. And I've said this before. That was the episode, the house that bled to death, which I think was four episode four or five. I was seven years old when that aired, and I'd watched all the other Hammer House of Horror episodes before it, and I'd regularly watched things like Tales of the Unexpected and stuff like that, with post watershed like thrillers and you know horror charged entertainment. But this was the first one that impacted on me in such a way that I burst into tears and had to leave the room screaming. For those who've not seen that episode. The part that always stuck in my head that it was only a few years ago that I finally revisited it and I felt chills as it was getting up to that scene was the birthday party and the pipes start rattling and then blood starts spraying out over all the kids as they're celebrating the birthday party. And that, to me, was the one thing from my childhood that was far too much. It was the most powerfully scary thing that Hammer had ever put out as far as I was concerned. I'd seen so many Hammer horror films, but on TV, man, it's. I think it's because it looked so dirty and it looked so cheap. It looked yeah, real. It was.
0: it was shot on sixteen mil. It has that look to it, um, which Andy and uh, and some of our listeners has inspired this week's question. Well, before
1: you do that, I just I just want to say that the only other thing that used to be similar to you with a uh, wicker man. And you felt, oh, this is rude. Maybe I shouldn't be watching this. For me, it's it's sneakily watching things like Bo Derek in 10 or Brooke Shields in Blue Lagoon. <laughs> you knew that you shouldn't be watching them. Bo, Bo Derek in 10 was the, was the biggest surprise because it looked like it was a nice little comedy with Dudley Moore. Was not expecting that. And I don't think my dad was either. <laughs> so that was my awkward sofa moment with my dad that you had with Wicker Man. I had it with Bo Derek in 10. <laughs>
0: So Andy, with, with some of those responses and your House of Horror response, I am totally inspired to give you this week's question. So whether it was Salem's Lot with good old Danny Glit clicking at the windows, whether it was the house dripping blood, movie scenes that have scared you, not entire horror movies, but just that one film scene, which is so frightening, terrifying, that it, it stays in your memory and haunts you. this day it's it's a jump scare that sort of jolts you out of actually out of your seat something that your brain cannot process because it is so so scary that's what can make a great horror movie and sometimes that one scene is more important than the rest of the film so with halloween quickly approaching by the time this show comes out we want you to tell us about that one moment horrifying incident in a film that has stayed with you maybe from your childhood maybe even recently that still in your head sends shivers down your spine every time you think about it and you know how to get in touch with us because i'm just going to tell you
1: Yeah, all you have to do is head over to social media channels. We're on pretty much all the major social media channels and some of the side ones. Search for Filmfile UK, you'll find us over there. Give us a follow and watch out for the question getting posted out. Respond to us via there. If you don't do social media, you can email us the answer, podcast at filmfile.uk. Or if you're listening on Spotify, the question is in the show description below. Reply to us directly via Spotify and you'll get your name read out on the show next week.
0: You will indeed. I can't wait to hear your responses, because we've all got that one scene. It's a Danny Glick. That's all I'm going to say, Danny Glick. So what do we have on this week's show? We've got so much to share with you. We have a deep dive into Sam Raimi's horror classic, The Evil Dead, and all the little deads that came after it. We've got reviews of...
1: I've seen Killers of the Flower Moon which I'll be talking about, but it won't take me three hours 26 to talk about. Pet cemetery Bloodlines, which won't take me three minutes to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and Slother House. Yes,
0: we've got a couple of low-budget horrors to talk about this week. I'll be mentioning Bodies, which landed on Netflix this last week. So, before any of that, we've got Box Office and we've got News and we've got our News Music <laughs> So we've got the box office. Last week, when we left you, uh, Taylor Swift's Eras tour was basically kicking cinema. But does that trend continue? And I'm pretty much guessing that it has.
1: So in the US, it's been a close call this weekend. But Taylor Swift held that top spot for a second week, taking 31 million to add to her total for her Eras tour. Martin Scorsese's latest entry opened in second place, taking 23 million. The Exorcist Believer held into third place with 5.6 million. Paw Patrol are still making their mighty movie hit the big screen with 4.5 million this weekend. And the 30th anniversary re-release of The Nightmare Before Christmas captured everyone's imagination again to take fifth place with 4.1 million. Here in the UK, it's the trolls who took the top spots. Trolls band together straight into the first place with 3 million taken this weekend. Killers of the Flower Moon once again in second place taking 2.5 million. Taylor Swift drops down into third place this week, taking 2.36 million this weekend. Leo opens in fourth place with 1.15 million. And Paw Patrol in fifth place, taking another 800,000 to add to its UK total. Taylor Swift's service tour has currently taken 160 million worldwide. It's a fantastic turnout for a concert movie. And Killers of the Flower Moon is up to 44 million so far. The long run time obviously limits the amount of shows that it can get. Hopefully, it'll get some good word of mouth and keep some running in future weeks before it finally lands on Apple TV later down the line.
0: Um, Here's an interesting fact based on the back of Taylor Swift. The Taylor Swift Eras Tour film has already grossed more at the US box office than all the combined 2023 DCEU films.
1: I mean, that, I mean, it's not saying much. I mean, you, you could have basically taken $5 and you've, you've beaten <laughs> most of the DCEU. <laughs> we, we said last week about the people who were being like snobby about it and saying, why is a concert in cinemas? Because people want to see it and because it's making money. And Taylor Swift, sharp head on her shoulders. She's apparently taken 57% of the box office take directly for her. There's no there's no distribution. She negotiated the distribution herself. So she has the ownership of very, it.
0: Very, very smart move.
1: She's very shrewd. Ever since, because a few years ago, she like re-recorded all her earlier works because her management had absolutely done her out of so much money with really bad terms in her contract. So she ditched them, re-recorded her works to get full ownership again. And since then has made shrewd move after shrewd move and may not be a fan of her music. But I have so much respect for her business acumen.
0: Yep, she's basically beaten Shazam, Fear of the Gods, The Flash, Blue Beetle, and, and probably Black Adam as well, just over basically the last week or so. Now, is is it going to be any better for the Marvels, which is expected to be her movie's opening weekend of uh, 92.8 million? Well, we're, we're going to see very, very shortly. So the actors' strike, Andy, where are we with that? We're
1: no further along, but the actors and studios are planning to resume talks this coming week after the talks of the previous weeks failed, as we discussed last week. Both parties are kind of desperate now to get something moving, but none of them want to back down on the key terms. Hopefully, we'll start to see some better negotiations going on. In additional strike news, uh, SAG-AFTRA has also announced that it's got going to schedule more bargaining sessions for video game contracts in the hope of uh, averting a secondary actors strike. Talks between SAG-AFTRA and a group of around 10 major video game companies broke off last month without an agreement, but at the time both parties indicated that they would like to continue to negotiate. It's possible that the video game industry might get impacted by all the strikes because they're suffering from the same kind of kickbacks as what the oh, okay. film industry and TV industry are having. Last month, membership voted overwhelmingly to authorise a separate strike against the game companies if talks can't reach a deal before the November 7th deadline. Video games might be next on the chopping block or de- for delays if these don't go well, but they are hoping to avert it. And again, if the Screen Actors guild strike going on at the moment can get resolved with some terms and conditions that are agreeable, then that will probably carry across into the actors for video games in addition now this was a bizarre one did you see the announcement by sag aftra that these members should not dress up as popular characters for halloween I actors who did. are members of the union were basically prohibited for this halloween to dress up as film or tv characters and post those images online no costumes like barbie Oppenheimer, wednesday adams or any marvel superheroes will be allowed i mean really is that's what you need to do because it's ridiculous. They, they advise their members to choose costumes inspired by generalized characters, a ghost, a zombie, a spider, something simple.
0: There was a lot of kickback from, uh, from it, I did notice as well.
1: The backlash and kickback from everyone. This is not how you get people on board with what you're saying by doing stupid things like that. Because the kickback has come from actors themselves who are going, yeah. whoa, 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 seriously. Focus on sorting us out a deal that works rather than telling us how to enjoy our time with our families. And I don't think any of the actors are going to take this one seriously. And they will be ignoring this strict advice from SAG-AFTRA here because, come on, it's Halloween. They want to dress up with their families and have fun and forget about the cares of the world. Stop trying to force people to not have fun. Focus on getting the, the right deal for the kit, for back-end deals. Sort out the AI issues. Stop hassling about someone dressing as Spider-Man.
0: Well, I've, I've got some film news for you, though, Andy. Might cheer you Have up. Have Corinne Hardy, the Irish director, directed uh, The Hallow, uh, directed episodes of Gangs of London, and The Nun has announced that his next film is a high school horror movie titled The Whistle. The project has lined up a pretty good cast of uh, young actors, including Daphne Keane, who played Laura X-23 to comic fans uh, in Logan. Basically, a group of students come across an ancient Aztec whistle, which, when blown, unleashes, well, some kind of a curse. Nick Frost is also on board. Keane is also set to appear in the upcoming Disney Plus Star Wars series, The Acolyte.
1: Daphne Keane's so good. Anyone who watched his Dark Material series for the BBC and HBO will know what she can bring to anything. Uh, I'm interested to see what she does as her career moves on further. Over to Marvel. Uh, Stephen Dunite, who was the showrunner of Netflix's three-season Daredevil, uh, has commented on the news that we'd covered about how they've scrapped what, was, what had already been filmed for the new Daredevil series, and then they're going to rejig it and rethink it all through. We know that fewer than half of the show's planned 18-episode run have been shot before the strikes halted filming. And that they've in the meantime, they've looked at it and gone, whoa, we need to change this. Well, Stephen DeKnight's comments on it are pretty to the point. He's not happy that the show is scrapped and have consistently stated the opposite. However, I am delighted that they finally realize you need an actual showrunner who's a writer to make a series work. And I echo those thoughts. I completely agree entirely. Yes, Stephen D'Night, I was as taken aback as you were that Marvel have not had showrunners for the past few yeah. years. And yeah. you look at the product that was put out and you can kind of understand it.
0: Always feels a little bit directionless, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, so hopefully we'll start to improve things going forwards. But we have to wait and see. And also with Marvel, with the strikes all going on, Sean Levy has now said that he's uncertain if the third Deadpool movie will still make its May the 3rd, 2024 release date. All speculation online is saying that it's shifting. There's been no confirmation from the Marvel studio at this point in time. As we know, the Deadpool was one of the projects that was still filming when the writer's strike hit in because they were confident they had the script. And then they got to a point that they needed writers. And then the actor's strike started as well. And everything was put on hold. Since July the 14th, production hit, has hit pause completely and it's been on ice ever since. In an interview with The rap, Levy expressed his concern about the Deadpool 3 delay, saying, I don't even know if we officially have a release date now. I know we were going to be May the 3rd. Certainly the actor's strike and the long pause in production have put that release date in true risk. We've shot half the movie. We've edited half the movie. We're dying to get back to work and get this movie out next year. In addition levy was recently attending a kansas city chiefs game alongside stars hugh jackman and ryan reynolds and they were there alongside taylor swift who apparently is good friends with uh reynolds's wife blake lively and that sparked rumors now that oh, is course. taylor swift cameoing as dazzler in the deadpool movie sounds like fan wish fulfillment to me well levy has been He's got no comment, but the way he's done a no comment has sparked the rumours even more. Because what he said was, I'm going across the board, no comment, because that's a double whammy. That's Taylor related, and it's MCU related. I'm no dummy. You're going to have to wait and see. Way to really make people... (laughs) Yeah, let's let's nip that rumour in the bud by just going, well, it is MCU related, so I'm not talking about it. Wink, wink. Um, I think it would be a good... If if she has got a cameo as Dazzler, I think she'd make a good Dazzler.
0: Over in DC World, uh, responding to fans on social media, as he always does, uh, DC Studio co-CEO James Gunn has once again made it clear that each of the DCU slates of movies will showcase a, a very different style and a very different tone based on the director's own individual style. And I think... Looking at some of the best work that has come out of DC, looking at Joker uh, in particular, it was the directors who who brought something different to it that made the films stand out. So Gunn, as we know, is going to shoot uh, Superman Legacy, uh, but he is stating that with each film, there will be a shift from project to project, and that will reflect the unique sensibilities of all those filmmakers involved. I rewatched the Suicide Squad uh, uh, yesterday, and it is—it's so James Gunn, and that's why it stands out. I know he, he didn't do it at the box office, but it felt fresh and different, and it had that that gun sensibility to it.
1: DC—if anyone who reads DC comics knows that there's such a wide array of styles and tones, even across the connected universe of comics, so you shouldn't expect the films to all feel exactly the same. They shouldn't all be grim, dark adventures with Batman. Because Superman is not a grim, dark adventure. And I don't want Green Lantern being grim, dark adventures. And I don't yep. want The Flash being a grim, dark adventure. So, fingers crossed, the future of the DC Universe and DC brand on film is going to be a bit more creator-led. And I'm always one
0: for creator-led stuff. Andy, I, I don't mean to get you back into therapy, but did we mention the Winnie the Pooh blood and honey situation?
1: Oh, do, do we have to? I mean, I to, I'm still oh, no. suffering yes. Yes. from Yes, yes,
0: we do, yes. Okay.
1: What's the situation then?
0: <laughs> OK, so in a, uh, a school in the US, kids sat down to watch what they thought was going to be a nice Winnie the Pooh adventure. Turns out it wasn't at all nice uh, in, in many different ways, as they were shown uh, Winnie the Pooh, blood and honey. Now, according to the news, the teacher let it run for far too long, even after the first sort of uh, bloody incident <laughs> And that I, I do find hard to believe. But of course, uh, being in the world that we live in, um, kids were triggered, lawsuits taking place. And uh, um, you can see that showing a movie, of showing Winnie the Pooh blood and honey to anybody, but to fourth graders in particular, was, was a, a, a bad move.
1: He let it run too long. What, more than one minute? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a parent, I'd be absolutely livid my kids were showing Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey at school at too early an age. Because if you're going to show them a horror film, at least show them a good horror film, <laughs> not something as garbage as that. I, that's, that's my biggest upset is that like, you are subjecting your kids to that rot. At least put Nightmare on Elm Street on. Let them watch something good. <laughs> we, we hear about these kind of stories of like teachers accidentally starting something. And I've seen people online saying like, surely the teacher noticed it wasn't the right film. Come on, we've all been at school when the teachers put the film on to keep us entertained. Does the teacher stay there in the class? No, they, they nip out.
0: Or, or, or get on with marking and, and not looking.
1: Yeah, so that they don't pay attention. So uh, I think that teacher's going to be playing attention a bit more seriously going forwards. And... Uh... Hopefully, I mean, hopefully it's not scarred those kids too much and, you know, they're not going to think that that's what horror is because <laughs> I want them to grow up and all like horror as it should be.
0: Uh, you'd be pleased to know, Andy, that Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2 has, has got no, Tigger in it.
1: No, no, because that film is in the production. It is going to come out and I will end up watching it. So please, God. I need to, I feel that I need to, don't I? <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's like cleansing your soul.
1: This is akin to me watching all the Sky originals last year. This is something that I feel that I need to do, no matter how much I don't want to. Anyway, let's move Let's move away from Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, and all the nightmares that it brings to my head. James McAvoy is going to direct a film for the first time.
0: I saw this story.
1: Uh, he's making his feature directorial debut on a true life, true life tale about two Scotsmen who impersonated an American rap duo in the late 90s. It's the story of two young men from Dundee, Gavin Bain and Billy Boyd, who were regularly having their musical ambitions ridiculed for having the wrong accent. So they reinvented themselves as Californian rappers with the duo re recording their own tracks with fake accents. They hit London claiming to be an established duo known as Silbill and Brains, along with claiming that they were childhood friends with Eminem. The film is currently untitled, but will show how they bagged themselves a record deal, got hefty advances, and even appeared on MTV before. They were uncovered and their dreams crashed and burned there's been a documentary about this back in 2013 called the great hip-hop hoax which i think i need to track down before i watch this film but james mcavoy who you'll know as the actor in the x-men films and also in split marvelous actor yeah if he can be half the director that he is an actor this is going to be a great little film and i'm very interested to see what he does with it Uh,
0: apparently Ridley Scott has shared his thoughts with director Fede Alvarez on the upcoming Alien. Uh, It seems to be subtitled Romulus, whether that's what it's going to be called when it's released, we don't know. But he's uh, he's given a pretty much a thumbs up to an early cut of the film, which has made Fede Alvarez a very happy man. But we'll wait and see.
1: I always get sceptical when the creator and kind of originator who has some rights to a franchise or may regain the rights to it. Starts bigging it up before it comes out because we saw it with the Terminator franchise, where James Cameron with every yeah, single one of the films, told us how yeah. it was amazing, until like it came out and then he go, "Actually, uh, it's not that good." I've got more confidence in Ridley Scott because he's not someone to hold back on his opinions. Anyway, we know from previous interviews and like his discussions on things that he's not going to play the game. He will speak his mind. So. I've got more confidence that maybe there is something here. And Freddy Alvarez, I've got some love for his style. So let's remain optimistic, but also with a hint of scepticism at the same time. So Scorsese has obviously been promoting Killers of the Flower Moon, and he's confirmed during it that his next film that he's going to be adapting is David Gran's non-fiction book, The Wager. Don't know that one. It's a story set in the 1740s, beginning when a patched-together boat with 30 emaciated men landed on the coast of Brazil. The men claim to be the survivors of a British ship that crashed onto an island in South America's Patagonia region, and their tales of surviving the seas and elements make them heroes. Six months later, another, even more dilapidated vessel is found off the coast of Chile, this ship carrying three survivors, claims the other men were actually mutineers, and accusations start to fly. The British Admiralty set a special trial to uncover the truth of what exactly happened on the island and whose story is right. This film has taken precedence over other projects that has had planned. He's had um, a Jonah Hill-led Jerry Garcia biopic on the back burner, a DiCaprio-led Teddy Roosevelt biopic. He's got an adaptation of Marilyn Robinson's novel Home and his previously teased Jesus film that he wants to tackle. So he's showing no t- sign of slowing down. I know some people said Killers of the Flower Moon, if this was his last film, it'd be the perfect thing to go out on. Scorsese ain't going to roll over and give up. Scorsese is just constantly going to be making films, and I'm glad for it.
0: When it comes to Christmas ghost stories, Mark Gattis seems to have got it sewn up, and he's back this year with another ghost story. Okay, they've been a bit hit and miss, but I'm always there for a Christmas ghost story. That's one of my, always one of my things. It's one of my, my traditions. So uh, Gattis is teaming up with Game of Thrones actor Kit Harrington for a ghost story called Lot Number. 249 which is based on a story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Written and directed by Gattis who previously adapted uh, some Doyle's work in uh, Sherlock and as I said is responsible for a whole ton of adaptations of M.R. James Horror Stories for Christmas. I'll be there. I'll be there for it.
1: Last little bits of uh, quickie news. So first of all, I'm going to end up watching this. I know I am. There's a film called Zombie Plane that is a is being greenlit, which will see 80s action hero Chuck Norris team up with rapper Vanilla Ice and an Australian singer turned actress Sophie Monk who broke through in the 2000s with the band Bardo. The project is backed by Studio Dome's entertainment squad and Aussie producer, distributor, Radioactive and centres on a secret government or- organisation that recruits celebrities to be undercover agents who together must save humanity from an imminent zombie attack. It sounds dreadful, it does, you're right. All three of these stars will play versions of themselves, Norris being the commander who mentored and trained the other stars into becoming deadly secret agents. And I know that I'm going to watch it because it just sounds right up my alley of like, this is so bad, it needs to be watched. <laughs>
0: I'm still still getting over, it needs to be watched. <laughs> does it? Does you, it really?
1: You know, you know how my mind works. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's been a couple of films that have been given interim agreements from SAG-AFTRA to start filming during the actors' strike. This is generally when it's got an international production going on, but they want to use sag after members, they get an agreement in order to get it off the board, or it's a low-budget independent film that would struggle to actually get made if they didn't make it here and now. Uh, first of all, I, Oscar Isaac, Jason Momoa and Gerard Butler will be starring in Julian Schnabel's next feature, um, In the Hands of Dante, which is an adaptation of Nick Torsha's historical novel following two separate stories, one set in the 14th century in Sicily, featuring Dante Alighieri, and the other set in fall 2001 with a fictionalised version of the author as a weary New York scholar. And the other film that have been getting into interim agreements, we'll see Pierce Brosnan and Samuel L. Jackson, along with Brendan Lesard from Robert the Bruce, teaming up for a film called Unholy Trinity, which, and it's one of my favourite genres, is a western currently shooting at Yellowstone Film Ranch in Montana.
0: Okay, I'd like a good western.
1: It's set in the 1870s Montana, picking up the moments before the execution of Isaac Broadway, as he gives his estranged son, Henry Lassard an impossible task. He must murder the man who framed him for a crime he didn't commit. Classic Western setup. Looking forward to that one. Great cast as well. Brosnan and Jackson together. Oof. Uh,
0: I've stayed with this, but I don't think you have. But Gen V or Gen 5, depending on if you care. Um, it's okay. <laughs> it's a spin-off from The Boys. Um, I'm not loving it. I've stayed with it. But it has been confirmed that enough people have stayed with it because season two uh, is coming to Prime Video. So it's done well enough to garner a second series.
1: I have read as well that apparently the final episode of Gen V will kind of lead into the next season of The Boys. And then the final episode of that season of The Boys will lead back into Gen V. And I hate that idea completely because I'm not enjoying Gen V and I don't want to continue in watching Gen V in order to fill gaps that I feel that have missed. Yeah, I shouldn't be forced to watch another spin-off show just because I will now be confused at the start of The Boys next year. Here's something that made me smile. The Wombles, that oh, yes. classic beloved 70s stop-motion British animated series, is, uh, is getting a reboot.
0: It's going back, isn't it?
1: Plans from Altitude Television uh, to make a modern TV series remake of it. Uh, The show followed a secretive group of furry creatures who live below Wimbledon Common and uh, basically gathered the rubbish and kept Wimbledon Common clean.
0: Did you know there was a a couple of other reboots of it? There was a, a CGI version which didn't last very long as the production company ran out of money. And then there was a version in the mid to late 90s. But you know what's going to be missing from it? The characters were great bernard cribbins
1: what marvelous characters he gave us in the voices that he offered i've seen a lot of trailers this week but i've got a selection that i want to really highlight first is a uh, something that i didn't even know was happening What's rennie that? Harlan as is, is doing the next film in the strangers series it's the third yeah. film in the series but it's called strangers chapter one and the trailer for this is not exactly a trailer it's like an extended scene i'm not saying it's one. it's nice and chilling Um, it's exactly the same kind of chilling and i think the strangers is something that we need to deep dive at some point because that film is terrifying
0: yeah the very first one is the second one didn't do it for me at all
1: but rennie Harlan, we've said before when we've spoken about rennie Harlan films that we've got some love for what he does and i'm i'm very intrigued with what he's going to do with the strangers chapter one
0: he's got a film right now on netflix which when it opened did absolutely zero money and he's he's even though it's not good, is Finding Its Feet on Netflix, which is a, a Pierce Brosnan starring heist movie. Uh, might get around to uh, to talking about it. Might not. Have you seen any trailers? Uh, yeah, the Ferrari trailer. Pushing Adam Driver to his limits in Michael Mann's new racing drama. Everything from Michael Mann we look forward to. I've suddenly got a, a, a new appreciation for, for Adam Driver. Watched 65 last week, which I really enjoyed. and, um, and uh, You kind of forget how good a screen presence Adam Driver is because he he sort of disappears into his roles. Um, so looking forward to that. There was George Clooney's The Boys on the Boat, starring Joel Edgerton as, uh, um, in a Going for Gold uh, epic. I'm a big fan of George Clooney as a director as well.
1: Mm, I don't think there's any George Clooney film that I've not found some something to grab me yeah. and draw me into it. Um I've also seen the trailer for The Iron Claw, which is the A24 wrestling movie with Jeremy Allen White and Zach Efron. And it looks... It looks very similar to uh, The Wrestler, the okay. Alonofsky film, in that it's taking like a, a very gritty approach to the world of wrestling, but with all the showbiz and highlights. It's coming from A24, of course I'm watching it. Yeah. Uh, there's the new trailer out for John Woo's action seasonal twist film, Silent Night, which looks everything that you want from um, a John Woo action film. Uh, there's Please Don't Destroy The Treasure of Foggy Mountain, which was a trailer that I had never heard anything of. No. And it had me chuckling throughout it. It's a film in which sees a trio of nerds find a treasure map and race to find the wealth, battling other people who are seeking this treasure. And also weird animatronic birds that are uh, apparently stalking them.
0: I'm kind of getting a Goonies vibe off that.
1: It it looks like a a Goonies, but with adults um, and with really stupid jokes. And then there's been a couple of TV spots for Godzilla Minus One, which were basically cut down versions of the two trailers that we've already seen. Yeah, But we're just spoiled at the moment for giant monsters films. Yeah. We've got Monarch coming soon and we've got classic Godzilla, but in this new modernized way, which is nothing to do with the Monarch ones. This is the Japanese Godzilla. Yeah, We're spoiled. 14, we're spoiled. And I love it.
0: <laughs> You're waiting for one Kaiju, um, waiting for ages, and then a whole bunch of them come crashing through, <laughs> through your roof. Well, that's it for the news, except some sad passings. Um, the first one that probably doesn't make much of an impact here in the UK, but our US listeners will will certainly understand how important the side passing of Suzanne Summers was.
1: Yes, uh, she passed away aged 76. In a statement from her longtime publicist, it was revealed that Summers passed away peacefully in her home last Sunday morning, surrounded by family. She first came to attention when she cameoed in American Graffiti, the George Lucas film, which has been on our deep dive list for quite some time now. Yeah. And she broke through in 1977 with ABC Comedy Series Three's Company. She played Chrissy Snow opposite Joyce DeWitt's Janet Wood and John Ritter's Jack Tripper, uh, making a huge name for herself. It was only when she demanded a five-fold increase in her salary around the fifth season that it was led to her being written out of the show. But she's popped up in various other TV shows. She's the sheriff, step-by-step, as well as becoming very wealthy through her own branding multi-billion dollar business empire. Built up on infomercials and serving as as spokeswoman for the muscle toning Thigh Master device. She's been in films, in some, like some films such as Bullet, Magnum Force, Serial Mom, Billy Jack Goes to Washington. And she also guest spotted on popular TV shows such as The Rockford Files, Starsky and Hutch, and The Love Boat. Like Lee said, in the UK, probably someone that you had to know of in order to know. But for those of us who did know of some of her work, um, it's a it's a sad loss.
0: Three's Company, by the way, was the Americanized version of Man About the House, which starred uh, Richard O'Sullivan. And then, lastly, uh, a sad passing for those fans of Rocky, he was the cornerstone of those films, and we lost Bert Young this week. Yes,
1: uh, and this is someone who everyone, no matter where you are in the world, will know. Bert Young might not recognize the name, but as soon as you say poorly from the Rocky movies, everyone knows. Burt Young was extremely prolific. He popped up everywhere through the years, from notable roles such as Rodney Dangerfield's chauffeur in Back to School. He played a a young hood in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, a fisherman in Polanski's Chinatown, a trucker in Peckinpah's Convoy. He was a driver in Killer Elite, a mob boss in Mickey Blue Eyes, a hardworking husband in Last Exit to Brooklyn, a a criminal in The Gambler, parent of a trans woman in Transamerica, He's another one of those actors that never really got a lead role, was always a supporting actor, but always a good supporting actor who brought something and you looked out for in the films that he popped up in because he was so good. Even had TV work in shows such as The Sopranos, Columbo, Tales from the Crypt, Law and Order, Walker, Texas Ranger, Outer Limits, everywhere. He was a beloved actor and passed away age 83
0: this week. Yep, great character actor and a sad loss. And that, folks, that's the news. If you're enjoying the show and you haven't already done so, uh, why don't you subscribe to The Film File? If you've done so, at least tell your friends that this is by far the coolest film podcast out there. We might not have all the big stars. We might not have all the money. But you do have me and Andy for an hour and a half of pure film love. So please subscribe if you haven't done so. Head over to your favourite podcast platform, hit the subscription button, and remember to leave a like And please tell all your friends.
1: You can also get in touch with us via social media platforms. Uh, Tell us about your favourite films. Tell us what films you want us to cover. Just head over to any social media platform. Search for Filmfile UK. If we're on there, send us a message. Or you can email us, podcast at filmfile.uk. We'd love to hear anything that you've got to say about the world of film, TV and entertainment.
0: If it's geeky, we need to know.
1: And don't forget, as an exclusive offer to our listeners, you can pick up a copy of Harvey Morton's inspirational book, Succeeding as a Young Entrepreneur, with a whopping 25% discount. In the book, Harvey shares his inspirational journey from an early life of being bullied at school and being told by teachers that he would never succeed, only to go on to win business awards at the age of 14 and continue his success through perseverance and determination, working with well-known brands including Sheffield Hallam University and Santander and the BBC. Harvey's tale is an inspiration to his all and he shares the secrets to his success in this new book, Head over to eurospanbookstore.com, search for Harvey Morton and apply the code filmfile25 at checkout to get a whopping 25% off. The book releases just in time for Christmas, so it makes the perfect present for that person in your life who what has dreams and ambitions, but doesn't know
0: how to reach them. And now it's time for this week's Deep dive. For this week's Deep Dive, we're going to go back to 1981, the time when a low-budget filmmaker decided basically to raise the money himself and make one of the true greats of horror, a film that was so successful, it spawned a franchise. He got his pal, Bruce Campbell, along with actor friends, to tell the story of five college students vacationing in an isolated cabin deep in the woods, where they find an audio tape that, when played, releases a legion of demons and spirits. Four members of that group suffer from demonic possession, forcing the fifth, Ash to survive an onslaught that gets gorier and gorier and scarier and scarier. Yes, Sam Raimi's is the evil dead. I have seen the dark shadows moving in the woods and I have no doubt that whatever I have resurrected is sure to come calling for me. evil dead they got up on the wrong side of the grave evil dead from new line cinema so frightening no one under 17 admitted what i always liked about sam raimi's evil dead more so than the film itself is just the amount of gusto that sam raimi threw into this film this is a film which is uh, a labor of love. The whole production process of how he raised money from from dentists of all people to mm-hmm. to make this make this work. He secured ninety thousand dollars from uh, investors, and he shot the Evil Dead, that really did rethink horror films. It was banned in the UK, but it made a big star out of Bruce Campbell, and it made an even bigger star out of director Sam Raimi, who of course went on to direct the Spider Man films and last year's Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. So it's probably apt that we don't just look at The Evil Dead, but we look at it and its success across five films, a TV series, numerous comics, a video game. Let's talk about The Evil Dead. Andy, for a film that only cost $90,000 to make, it grossed an initial $2.4 in the US, and then $29.4 worldwide. Now that's a success. Why? Why is this film considered to be such a horror classic?
1: We can't speak for the American audiences, but for the British audiences, the fascination with this film is because it was banned. It was a yeah. UK video nasty. When it initially got its release in the UK, way back, it was trimmed by 49 seconds and it got an X rating at the time. On home release, it got released briefly on home release in the UK on VHS and took a hundred thousand pounds within like that run, before it got pulled, because the time that it got released on VHS, video releases were not rated by the BBFC, and this is where the whole video nasties aspect came in, and it's because of films like The Evil Dead that the introduction of the Video Recording Act and classification system for home releases was brought in, and this was promptly banned as a video nasty. Obviously, I didn't see this on the big screen when it had its X-rated release, because I was far too young, so this was a film that I heard about in notoriety because you weren't allowed to see it and so there was pirate copies of this doing the rounds really bad copies of copies of copies and you clamored to sit with your mates and watch this banned film and see what all the shock and like what what all the shock and the furore was all about in the UK when it finally got released on home release again in 1990 another 66 seconds were removed from it i didn't know
0: that i remember the initial cut but i didn't realize was a, a another minute and a half got out of it
1: and i remember picking that up on the 1990 release with the 66 seconds cut. and because i'd only seen like grainy copies of copies of copies i couldn't quite work out what was missing because the versions that i'd seen had never been great the uncut version took until 2000 to finally release in these shores when the dvd box set came out with the all three films so we didn't get the proper version of this film until just over two decades ago
0: interestingly enough i i now don't know which version of the film i initially saw now like everyone else i saw a uh shall we say a a hooky copy on uh, vhs scared me to death in a way that it was its graphic use of violence and, and horror that really touched a nerve. Looking back on it now, you can see that the film has has a really dark sense of humour that runs through it, which is, which is prevalent, I think, in all of Raimi's work. Uh, he knows how to get you to jump out of your seat, but he also gives you the opportunity to, to sort of give a little bit of a, of a laugh afterwards, which I... I mentioned when we we talked about Evil Dead Rises was something that was missing that that sense of humor that dark sense of humor that that runs through it it's it's bravado filmmaking and I think it inspired more horror filmmakers than probably anything else the fact that Raimi on a low budget put together impressive special effects he got fantastic performances out of non-actors and of course Bruce Campbell went on to do so much more he had a real sense of developing a look and a style, the use of Dutch angles, uh, mm. the camera dolly that they created because they couldn't afford to, to have a camera dolly, and also um, the, the shaky cam, which was their way of emulating steady Cam, which gave the film an absolutely unique and polished look against other kind of low-budget films that came out. Yeah. Similar in that that particular time, Ramy set out his style for direction, which were elaborate, well conceived, and was great storytelling in a way that he's used that throughout his career.
1: This is the calling card for Ramy, and um, you know everything that he grew his style into over the following films that he did afterwards is prevalent within here. It, all the origins of it is in here, like you say, is is having to improvise with like his own version of a uh, steadicam which was basically plopping a camera on a plank of wood and having two operators run through the woods with it. And that is now the most iconic fluid motion of the evil dead moving like towards the cabin. The vasocam is the one that I am always love, which is where you just basically took a few pieces of wood, put loads of Vaseline on it, and then just let a camera slide down it so you get like a fluid like motion to zoom in on something. It was such clever experimental filmmaking from someone who had only basically made eight millimetre short films with his buddies to be so creative in such a pressure environment. And it was a pressure environment. Uh, The cast and crew will talk and have talked in depth about how the 12 days of shooting for the main bulk of it was torture. The cabin that it shot in was also where they slept at and sweated all around each other. They didn't get a chance to wash for days. It was horrible environment. Multiple times the stars would end up getting physically injured on set, especially Bruce Campbell, who Raimi put through the absolute grinder. But because he's his good mate, he just took it all in good spirits, no matter what Raimi wanted him to do. And we've seen that happen throughout Raimi and Campbell's careers as they've worked together since then. Is Campbell will throw himself into anything. On behalf of Raimi, because he loves him so much. They are such good friends. It's just a prime example of experimental filmmaking that works. And whilst the, there was initially just 12 days of shooting in this cabin with everyone, the film wasn't finished. Campbell and Raimi looked at what they had and went, We need more. And so they started shooting stuff without everyone else and with what became known as fake shemps.
0: Oh yeah, which is, um, if I remember correctly, is Ted Raimi.
1: Yes, Uh, Ted Raimi or occasionally a couple of other actors were basically brought in on standby so they could take do different shots, reshoot things, add more elements in without having to bring the original cast back because it was a low budget. They didn't have the money to pay them to come back. So it was just used friends and family. Ted Raimi has constantly become a part of Raimi's films ever since, because he is known as the fake Shemp. And the fake Shemp, the name fake Shemp comes from Raimi's love of Three Stooges. And you will see the listings in every Raimi film, there'll always be a fake Shemp listed in there. And it's usually Ted Raimi. And that's just basically, he's used a substitute actor to stand in for people who weren't on set at the time.
0: As Bruce Campbell remarked, it's a low budget film. It's got rough edges, but even so, there are parts of the movie that are visually stunning. The editing was inspired by Brian De Palma's uh, film, Blowout, uh, which, we again, we should talk about at some point. And uh, Joel Cohen of the Cohen Brothers helped out on the edit of that film, of course, a friendship that grew into them working together on other films. So we know for a low-budget film that he took the world by storm. Uh, It gained a notorious following, so much so that uh, there was a sequel. A sequel that was kind of a remake, a reboot, but decided to do something a little bit a little bit different.
1: Amongst all the cast in the first Evil Dead, Bruce Campbell became the standout star. However, his character didn't seem like it was someone who would ever go on to be anything major iconic. So it took the Evil Dead 2 to kind of retell Ash's story and then take it in a different direction. It's Evil Dead Two that makes the Ash character suddenly become this like scenery chewing and wisecrack quipping action hero in the horror industry, and we could we could actually do deep dives individually about all the Evil Dead films because the making of each of them has so much depth to it. But we'll quickly go through um, how the series progressed. Evil Dead Two: the first twenty minutes are basically a retelling of the Evil Dead. In an almost hyperactive format, it rushes through. Some of the cast, are, like discarded roles, are recast. But Ash Williams is the focus, and it's basically to set Bruce Campbell's Ash as this leading man. He goes in the original Evil Dead. He's very nerdy and not very like not not very sure of himself. But it needed to be something different for this one, and then it becomes its own thing. And then it adds the humor in. And whilst there was some humor in the original Evil Dead, most of the original Evil Dead was very dark and chilling. This, it suddenly becomes hyperactive. It becomes energetic. It has buckets of blood. Raimi's got more of a budget to play with, and he has fun with it. Ted Raimi gets to get loads of prosthetics put on and dangled from ceilings and gets a bit more involvement. And it all becomes basically what the franchise would move on to be going forwards it becomes a comedy horror of extreme proportions
0: Uh, and that was followed then in 1993 by army of darkness and this time you could say that dead by dawn evil dead 2 was a black very black comedy horror this is a fantasy comedy horror with the emphasis strongly this time on the comedic elements of the film
1: Yeah, with Army of Darkness as well, uh, Raimi gets a chance to show his love for Harryhausen kind of special effects with some stop motion skeleton scenes that are lifted straight from the Harryhausen workbook. they would already done stop motion in the very first Evil Dead film. Uh, I, I still think that finale, which has like all the Evil Dead slowly melting away in plasticine form, is so creative for the low yeah. budget that it was, but in Army of Darkness, he got chance to really go to town, and it's a film that hasn't stood up well to the test of time for me on revisits. I've become less enamoured with it.
0: it. It is silly. It yeah. is silly in places.
1: one time On the time it get released, I remember, I remember seeing Army of Darkness on the big screen because it was the first time that I could see an Evil Dead film on the big screen. because yeah, yeah, the yeah, others only saw on home release, and I was just blown away by it. I thought it was fun. It wasn't as bloody as Evil Dead 2. And this is one thing that I like about the Evil Dead films, is even though they're kind of the same story, they kind of retell the story at the same time, and they all take different approaches. The first one is dark, it's twisted, it's got some light humour, but most of the time, it's chilling and menacing cabin in the woods. The second one is over-the-top, bloody comedy horror. The third one is mythical fantasy, um, with with a slightly horrific twist, but with a huge amount of comedy. And then... At the end of this, it had two different endings: Army of Darkness.
0: Yeah, which which one did you see?
1: At the cinema, it was the Shop Smart, Shop S Smart.
0: Yeah, that, that was the one I saw.
1: And then on home release, it got released with the "I Slept Too Long" being the proper ending. And then we had nothing except for comic books to pick up the story, and video games, and boy. The comic books and video games picked up the story well. They picked up on the I slept too long story and then told how Ash would get back to his time through the comic books and through the video game stories. And everything seemed linked to some degree in the same way that the films are linked to some degree. There's changes done to the history and the chronology every time that there's a new Evil Dead. But that's all that we had for almost two decades.
0: There was talk of a, uh, another movie. There was talk of, of a reboot and a legacy sequel. Everything sat in development hell until, in 2013, we got uh, Freddy Alvarez's Evil Dead, which uh, starred Jane Levy. Uh, and even though this was a, a moderate box office success, it still meant that this were, there was room for another Evil Dead film. And this plays very much as a, as a kind of reboot, remake kind of movie, uh, with elements that are taken from the first film, uh, and done in a very different different way. This time we've got a, a, a female character, uh, Mia Allen. It's okay. There are bits of it that I like. It doesn't knock me out, but it it's it's okay.
1: I've got love for Alvarez's film because it goes back to it being a serious take on horror. It does linger on some of the absolute infliction of pain and violence in an almost Saw-esque kind of way at points. But I think Alvarez earns it. In the way that he he creates the tension it brings it back to being a horror cabin in the woods it takes away the humor strips it back to the bare bones and i've always loved the original evil dead over the other evil dead films anyway i've always preferred that style so i love that he went back to that not too long after that people wanted more ash williams and we got more ash williams we got Ash versus the Evil Dead TV series that lasted for a couple of seasons and it picked up the tale. Now, where did it pick the tale up from is the big question because it doesn't pick it up from the end of the third film. It kind of assumes that you you kind of know some of the comic stuff that happened and the video game stuff that happened in between. And so it just picks up as like Ash is now back in the present time. He's kind of like, <laughs> he's kind of a reject of society who gets drawn back into this twisted Evil Dead world again. And it's, I think that Ash versus The Evil Dead is absolute, absolute genius of TV making. And then
0: this year, we got Evil Dead Rise uh, from director Lee Cronin. I remember saying that, yes, it works because it does something different with The Evil Dead. It works because there are some truly horrific moments in it. But the one thing for me that that, that was missing from that, that was the humour I felt I was being bludgeoned throughout that film with horror after horror, and I wanted it to lighten up a little bit. I think you had a better time with it than I did.
1: I did, but I, I still think it's the weakest of all the films because yeah. it was it was more or less just playing the notes. It felt like a, 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 just a retread of Evil Dead 2, only in an apartment building. And like you say, without the humour. I'm still going to be there day one on any future Evil Dead film, be it part of Raimi's brand or part of this spin-off, darker take on it. I'll always be there because I find that the whole concept of this Book of the Dead bringing demons into the world is something that can get played on. And there's nothing new in anything that Raimi came up with here. I mean, so many people think that Evil Dead was the originator of the Cabin in the Woods kind of franchise. No, there's there's films as far back as 1947 with the Red House, which was Cabin in the Woods. Raimi was just taking an already established trope and just bringing it for a modern audience. But Raimi's Evil Dead... I think it's safe to say, is the originator of the modern take of the Cabin in the Woods series of films. And it's inspired so many other films and so many other franchises ever since.
0: There was a recent video game that came out in 2022 called Evil Dead, The Game. I don't know it, not played it, but the film has one heck of a legacy, uh, considered by many to be one of the great horror movies of all time. Let us know what you think. But if you want to catch up, Give yourself five nights of complete horror to watch the entire evil dead series andy if you want to spend some time with the evil dead how can you do so
1: it's not available for free on any service at this point in time but it's well worth picking up i mean there's box sets out there of the raimi films there's collections of everything out there pick it up on blu-ray treat yourself Or if you just want to watch it on a streaming service, you can pay to rent it or purchase it on all the usual channels, Apple TV, Apple TV, etc., etc.
0: The recent film *Evil Dead* rises you can find on Netflix, and you know what? If you're looking for something to watch on uh, on Halloween, give it a go. But if you really want to watch some *Evil Dead*, go back and find *Raimi's Original*. We'll be back next week with another post-Halloween deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Uh, Andy has done the Lord's work this week, even though he's been, he's been a bit crook. It's nice to <laughs> sit through at least one potentially great movie. Andy, let's start with Martin Scorsese's latest epic. That's Killers of the Flower Moon. I was sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. See what about them? See who's doing it. So many Osage are killed for the oil. We have so many deaths, we've lost count. If anyone knows anything about it, you must come to me. Your uncle. Are you scared of him? Right, I have many friends. I'm going to tell you who did it. Oh my God. Killers of the Flower Moon.
1: Martin Scorsese's latest film has had a lot of press focused on the runtime, causing a huge debate as to whether three hours twenty six is too long for a film that is released to the cinemas and whether the movie going experience should be shorter. The problem with such a discourse is that it fails to take into account whether the end product actually deserves or earns that time. Yes, this film is long and yes, it feels every bit as long as it is but I'll be damned if I can think of any moments within this whole feature that could have been excised in order to make it shorter. If anything, I found myself so immersed in this story and the characters within it that I would have happily sat through more. It's adapted from the book of the same name by David Graham, Killers of the Flower Moon tells the real-life tale of the murders that took place in the Osage Nation in the 1920s and the manner in which they were covered up or disregarded by the authorities due to conspiracy and manipulation by oil barons who exploited the indigenous people of the nation. It's a heavy piece of material to adapt and it tackles some sadly all-too-relevant themes of prejudice and corruption. The story primarily focuses on Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who returns from the war and seeks employment from his rancher uncle, William the King Hale, played by Robert De Niro, a landowner who has close, friendly ties with the Osage people. However, Ernest soon finds that his uncle's true intentions are to manipulate the wealth of the Osage for his own benefit, and he instructs Ernest to get close to Molly, played by Lily Gladstone, an Osage whose family owns a substantial share of the oil head rights. Ernest falls for Molly. And he must battle between his love for her and his sense of duty to his uncle, stepping closer to corrupting himself as he does so. As you'd expect from a master of cinema, Scorsese crafts a beautiful looking film, packed with detail. Cinematography from Rodrigo Prieto is sumptuous throughout, with landscapes, environs and interior locations all captured through wonderful lensing. The screenplay from Eric Roth and Scorsese paces perfectly to slowly build the tale, taking time to flesh out all the names involved and give depth to even the most minor of players. The music score layering a menacing tension underplaying key scenes keeps us uncertain as to everyone's true motives until a final act plays out, the whole dissection of everything before it. The cast here are all on excellent form. And if the only criticism that can be levied is that DiCaprio occasionally and very briefly, it must be said, becomes almost a caricature. You know you are watching players at the top of their game. Lily Gladstone, in particular, is mesmerizingly brilliant throughout, from her quiet aloofness at the start, to the first genuine looks of joy and amusement, to her sorrows later on. Not one moment of her on screen is wasted. And even when not speaking, she conveys so much through simple glances or gestures. When working alongside heavyweights who have been under Scorsese's tutelage many times, it would be easy to get buried into the background, but she holds her own and casts a dominant shadow over even De Niro at times, making her the true star of this film. This is a compelling true story, presented by a master artist who really misses the mark. The final scene alone is a work of inventive majesty. True life films always end with a wrap up of what happened after the events, usually played out via holding cards of script on screen. Here, instead, we are swiftly thrust to a radio play being enacted in front of an audience, where the wrap up for a final episode of a dramatisation is being delivered. With the final lines being read by the director, Scorsese himself, in such a heartfelt manner that if you hadn't broken emotionally before that point, you certainly will as the credits start to roll. This is three hours and 26 minutes of essential viewing. And whilst it be coming to Apple TV Plus in the not-too-distant future, it's one that deserves to be seen on the largest screen that you can find in a theatre.
0: It's Scorsese. I really, really want to see it. But it, the running time of this particular uh, movie just throws open some some interesting points for me, which is the idea that when Scorsese clearly got full director's, uh, has a full director's vision and has final cut on his films. It makes me wonder whether there are there is a film that is made for online purposes, uh, for streaming purposes, and a film made for cinema purposes. And uh, and they're two very, very different animals. Now, you've got Scorsese being able to do the film exactly as he sees it, as he did, did with The Irishman. But um, it's a different cinema-going experience watching something at home where you can go, right, I'm going to watch... I'm going to break this film into several parts, maybe uh, three hours worth and watch it that way. I'm just kind of interested in to see where filmmakers go, where there's clearly a a streaming service wants you to sit in your seat for as long as possible, not watching another channel, as opposed to going to the cinema where three and a half hours, even the best film in the world, becomes a bit book crunching after a while.
1: Like I say, this was three hours 26 and it felt like every bit three hours 26 but it felt like it earned all three hours and 26. I was not broken away from the screen at any point. I did not feel that I needed to pause it and disappear. I think it earned it. I think it deserved the breathing space that the three hours 26 gave it. And I think a lot of people who are being critical about the length of this film are forgetting that you know, the classics and the epics of the past century include films like The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur, which were much longer than this. This is just a, a, a throwback to letting a film take as long as it needs in order to tell the story. And I think if it had been edited down and tightened up, I think it would have lost some of the dramatic impact and flow.
0: So, Andy, your next film
1: is? (laughs) Complete change of pace. We're going to move over to some horror, and I've got two films to talk about, both of which landed on Paramount Plus recently, and both offer that low-budget horror experience, one for good, one for bad. So I'm going to start with the good, and that is Slotherhouse.
0: So cute. What is that? That's a sloth. If you're interested, I could sell you that one.
1: They're really that slow?
0: Maybe they just tricked us all.
1: In the jungle, she's a beta. But out here, she's an alpha.
0: Alpha? It is a wild animal. You don't even know what it eats. Alpha? <sighs> it's a slother
1: house when you pick a film called slother house to sit down and watch having read the basic synopsis of a sorority house adopting a sloth as a mascot only to find it starts to kill them one by one you pretty much know what you're setting yourself up for yeah yes This is a ridiculous concept of a comedy horror, but it knows how ridiculous it is, and so it plays along with it to the extent that even the most savvy would not have expected. The concept for the film came about when writer Bradley Fowler wanted to come up with the dumbest idea he could think of, and it's safe to say he excelled here. There's not much plot to expand upon, just 93 minutes of crazy fun That anyone partial to other dumb concept movies, such as Zombievers or Velocipasta, will lap up with a big grin across their face. If I was to put my serious critic head on, I could mock the low-rent dialogue. I could rip apart the sloppy acting, the comically bad effects. But in doing so, I'd be missing the point entirely. This film knows what it is. And it wants you to just sit back and laugh along as it tests the water of how silly it can get and trust me without spoilers the manner in which the sloth itself a cute yet cheaply animated puppet kills the college kids gets really silly as a result i found myself enjoying this far more than it would have deserved if it tried to take itself too seriously remember winnie the pooh blood and honey yeah this was a fun packed watch and I can genuinely see me watching this one again.
0: You've gone in a direction I didn't expect, sir.
1: It knows what it is, and that's what makes it work. It's having fun. Coming from that one, the other film was Pet Cemetery Bloodlines.
0: First place I learned about death was the Pet Cemetery. Dead things buried in that land would come back as something else. Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. My
1: dedication to Stephen King knows no bounds, and even though I've never been a fan of the book, the original film, and certainly not the most recent remake, I thought I'd give this prequel tale a chance. Set in the late 60s and focusing on Judd Crandall, it tells how he always dreamt of escaping his hometown until he discovered the dark secret of the cemetery in the woods and his family legacy as he connects with old friends to confront an ancient evil that plagues the town of Ludlow. Despite the presence of names such as Pam Greer and David Duchovny, This film is a bland, uninspired extension to the legacy of King's Tale, with nary and memorable character embedded throughout the short, yet drearily drawn out at runtime. Atmosphere and menace, which the best of King's Tales are packed with, is sidelined here for cheap shocks and bland gore. The film tries too hard to play the mystery of the burial ground, seemingly ignorant of the fact that the audience already know the mystery So any attempt to build dread and mystery around it's just wasted. Why they thought this prequel was a wise move to make is anybody's guess. When the original film and the recent adaptation of which this is closely linked to already told us all we needed to know about Judge Past is unsure, maybe a sequel could have built upon the already tired story a little bit better. But as it stands... This ranks alongside those multiple children of the corn sequels as poor attempts to wring some more menace from a king concept that should simply stay buried and never come back.
0: That's kind of the impression, exactly everything you've just said is is the impression I got from looking at the trail. I looked at it, I was tempted to watch it, and then, then, no, I had to say a defined no. Um, I'm quickly going to talk about a series that landed on Netflix because it should appeal to um, the geeks in all of us it's a series called bodies which is an adaptation of a vertigo series uh, written by Cy si spencer and Barnsley's very own artist dean ormston just a quick aside before i get any further into it uh, i met si spencer years back because he was from sheffield and uh, he helped me become a writer he uh, he passed away Uh, A couple of years ago, very much a sad loss. He he was far too young to go. Uh, You'll recognize his name from Doctor Who magazine, uh, Hellblazer, uh, Vinyl Underground for Vertigo. He worked on several TV shows, including EastEnders and The Bill, uh, and contributed scripts to Grange Hill. Uh, A fantastic bloke, uh, a great writer. But this series really sticks, and we don't don't talk enough about TV, but this one I'm going to mention. In 2023, an anonymous corpse is found on the streets of London. The twist is the exact same body is also found in 1890, 1941, and in 2053. Detectives from across different time periods investigate some very disturbing secrets that soon emerge. It stars one of your favourite actors, Andy, uh, Stephen Graham. This is... A gripping and unusual series, uh, with elements of throwbacks to uh, Jack the Ripper, uh, some sci-fi elements to it. It has a a Doctor Who esque element to it. Ab- since the series creator Paul Tomlin wrote episodes of Torchwood, and uh, Stephen Graham, as ever, apart from some odd accents, is a spectacular <laughs> leading man. It's ambitious. It's it works with the grand. Netflix budgets that, that can accommodate it. And it's also pleasingly, it's pleasingly British as well. Well worth checking out. It's on Netflix. It takes a fairly conventional approach to detective work, but it's done in a very, very unconventional way.
1: It's bit, That's on my list to watch once i finished House of Usher. Um, I've already got that bookmarked. Like you say, Stephen Graham is one of my favourite actors. And so I will seek out anything that he's in. I'm looking forward to sitting down and watching that.
0: Uh, Andy, what lands in the cinema, streaming, and basically in the world of geekdom this week?
1: So at cinemas, it's Five Nights at Freddy's, and that's going to be the big one next week. I'm intending to see it, so I'll be talking about that next week. I'm quite a fan of the games. There's the Dr. Jekyll film that has got a limited release, and that's the one that has uh, Eddie or Susie Izzard in the split role. Beetlejuice gets its 35th anniversary reissue. Wow, 35 years. years. And there's two streaming films that are making their way to cinemas at the same time. Retribution, which is a Liam Neeson film, and it's got those three dreaded words, a Sky original. And there's The Killer, which is David Fincher's new film for Netflix, has got a limited cinema run as well. I think this deserves to be watched at the cinema, and I'm hoping to see it before next week. Uh, Now TV and Sky, the aforementioned Retribution also lands on Sky at the same time. She Came to Me, also lands this week, and one of my picks of this year, Infinity Pool, uh, the Brandon Cronenberg film with my darling Mia Goth in it, is landing on Now TV and Sky to disturb everyone's imaginations. Over on Netflix, Sister Death, The After, and Life on Our Planet, which is a documentary from Steven Spielberg and the team behind Our Planet. The season one of it lands this week on Netflix, and I do love a good
0: nature documentary. Oh, well. I think we've uh, done sir. So, whereas we've got not much else to talk about other than our neat things, stuff that we've enjoyed over the last week um, that we really want to share with you. Andy, what have you got? My neat
1: thing is about thirteen minutes long. It's a short animation that landed on Disney Plus this past week to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Disney Animation Studios, and that's Once Upon a Studio, and it's Absolutely magnificent. The concept of it is that as the, all the animators leave the Disney animated studio at night, they, put, they question "Oh, if these walls could talk. And as soon as they're all out, the walls do talk as all the pictures of the beloved characters from Disney animation throughout the century start to come to life and run around the whole animation studios to gather together to take a group photo to celebrate their 100th anniversary. And I didn't expect a huge amount from this. I expected it to just be a oh, charming, fun, and mix of 2D and 3D animation. I did not expect to be welling up with tears of joy by the end of it. Ten minutes, and then three minutes of end credits. And it had me as an emotional wreck at the end, because all of your favourites are in there somewhere. Everyone gets a chance to shine. And this is a beautiful, beautiful tribute to the 100 years of magic and memories that the disney animated studio have given us everyone should give this a watch everyone should enjoy it and just remind yourself of what it what it is that makes the disney animated studios so special to us all marvelous storytelling in a simple short
0: for my neat thing i'm going to stay in the realms of tv i watched this a couple of weeks ago i have been meaning to talk about it as a neat thing If you were ever a fan of the FX series uh, Justified, which starred Timothy Oliphant as Marshall Raylan Gibbons, then you would have noticed on Disney Plus there was a sequel of sorts, Justified City Primeval, which I've just finished watching. And I was such a huge fan of of Justified. Great, great series uh, based on uh, an Elmore Leonard character. Uh, I was cautious about any show that comes back after a series of time, but they did this. They captured the kind of neo-Western crime drama of of the original Justified, mainly down to the charm of Timothy Olyphant. Uh, All the series has dropped on Disney Plus on their Stars channel. It is a, a great series. If you were a huge fan as I was of Justified, it's great to see Raylan Gibbons back because he is one of the the coolest characters Um, now he has a daughter and now he has uh, a new setting this time in Detroit it's well worth your time if you don't know the original series then give it a try Uh, it, it gives you enough to recognize just how good a series this is and apparently the way that the series ends there is potential for another series so that's justified city primeval on disney plus a sequel to justified series check it out and that folks that's us done for this week uh we'll be back post halloween next week for a brand new show and in the meantime um andy i hope you're gonna get uh get yourself much better i'm
1: over the worst of it now i'll, I'll hopefully hopefully just get into the post it's always like two weeks afterwards once you get past the worst of a cold, that you just still don't feel perfect, but at least you can get on with life. Uh, As long as I'm better by next Tuesday when it's uh, the quiz night at work. Yes, Halloween at the cinema, we've got a Halloween quiz going on and uh, I'm dressing up for it. Uh, I'm dressing in my Freddy Krueger costume and I'm going to be delivering a quiz as Freddy Krueger. It's uh, it's going to be a fun night to remember.
0: Cool. (laughs) Uh, We're playing uh, a gig down in... Billingsley Rock Club, uh, Birmingham Way. If you're in that area, come along and see us on the 28th. But in the meantime, we'll see you next week. And Andy, let's head down into that cellar and carve ourselves a witch.
1: Al um, Bestall, someone had to do it. In Diana Jones, Temple of Poon. <laughs> <laughs> the porn version of the famous Indiana Jones franchise. Which I just, I just took the joke that he put in there and just took it one step further by saying, does she get a good molar ramming? <laughs> oh, Anyway. <laughs> is
0: that going to make the cut?
1: I don't know. I'll decide when it comes to the edits. If not, <laughs> it'll be on the end or it'll be on the video.
0: If you haven't already done so here at the Film File, we would love to have you. We'd just love to have you as part of our family. <laughs> that did. We'd sound love hard. to have <laughs> you. <laughs> one of us, one of us up for my neat thing um i'm going to talk to you about 13 inches of pure joy (laughs) are
1: you getting centimeters mixed up again